Like I said at the beginning of the service, we're starting a new series today. We're actually using a curriculum by a Methodist pastor, uh, how dare we, um, named Adam Hamilton. I got to meet Adam last year at a small conference at another Methodist minister's house, uh, Leonard Sweet. He's kind of a, a thinker uh, within the church, and he teaches all over in a bunch of different seminaries and is written pretty widely a bunch of different books. If you've never read any of Leonard Sweet, I would encourage you to. They're great books. But he invites people to come to his house every year and, and meet with a kind of a nationally known speaker and talk with them. And Adam just impressed me uh, more than probably any other leader of a megachurch I've ever met. His integrity, his humility, uh, everything was, was incredible. And so as I started looking through some of the curriculums he had, I thought this series that he designed for Lent would be great for us, especially after having just come back from Israel, because the series takes you through kind of some of the historical sites in Israel in the Sunday school class and shows you what they're like and talks a little bit about their historicity and, and the real things that Jesus went through on this earth as he was here. And their church does a pilgrimage there every single year. We're going to be going and doing a trip there next year in January. Um, so we thought this would be a good time for us to just, since we're thinking about it and talking about it, talk more about the places Jesus were, was along the way of his ministry and his life through Lent. Uh, and this is an interesting term, the way, and I think Adam uses it very intentionally because the way was the earliest word, the earliest phrase or description that was used to describe the church, the followers of Jesus. Long before there was ever a word called Christians or little Christs as kind of the, what that means, they, they called themselves followers of the way. Now, what did that mean? What did it mean for them to say they were followers of the way? What do you guys think? Does anybody in here have an idea on what they were talking about when they called themselves followers of the way? So if I heard followers of the way of heaven, all right, what was this over here? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is that what I heard over here? Good job. What else? Anybody else? The way of Jesus. Yeah. Most simply, it was the way of Jesus. The, the way that Jesus contorted or comported himself while he was here on earth. The way that he acted towards other people. I mean, it's just an apt description for who we're called to be because we are supposed to be following the way of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be acting like Christ. And even the word Christian Later, as it's used to describe the people who follow Christ, it's just kind of a shorthand for this idea because you're calling the, that group, those people, little Christs, right? That we are acting like Christ acted when he was in this world. So over this next six weeks, we'll be looking at Jesus' life and ministry through those three years that were so pivotal and that really changed the entire course of history as he walked upon this earth and he did the ministry that God called him to do. This morning we're starting with his baptism and temptation. And the reason why we're starting here is because this is the place that all the Gospels start with for Jesus' public ministry. It was really when Jesus went out to the Jordan and met John out there, somebody that was a cousin of his, that we know Mary had gone and visited John's mom, Elizabeth, when she was about six months pregnant. And John, somehow in the womb, recognized and knew that Jesus was in Mary's womb and jumped, leaped. And Elizabeth kind of prophecies there about the child that's in Mary's womb. 
And so there, there is a connection between these two men from a very early age, and we can kind of assume and think that they probably knew each other through family gatherings, and every time Mary and Joseph made their way to Jerusalem, they got together and they, they met with each other. And so we can assume that they've known each other for many years, and yet Jesus goes out to this strange cousin of his who's out in the desert and is causing all kinds of problems. He's baptizing people in a baptism of repentance. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees go out there and they, they go to observe what he's doing because lots of people are flocking to him and they're getting baptized by him in the Jordan. And they're wondering, what is this strange man out here? And they're trying to see what he's about. And John has some pretty harsh words for those Pharisees and Sadducees out there, right? He, he calls them what? He calls them what? A group of vipers. Now imagine that. What if I stood up here and called you all a group of vipers? Those would be fighting words, right? You'd be calling a meeting afterwards and maybe uh, looking to replace me with somebody else pretty soon, right? Uh, and so here's John calling this group of authority figures who come out to see his ministry a group of vipers. So John didn't mince words at all. And Jesus goes out to him and Jesus asks him to baptize Jesus, to baptize him. And John recognizes immediately, because he knows the specialness of Jesus, he's known it since he was even a fetus in the womb, that there's something different about Jesus, and that, that John's ministry is really preparing the way for the Messiah, who he believed was Jesus. And so when Jesus comes to be baptized by him, he's confounded. He's like, what are you doing out here to be baptized by me? I should be being baptized by you. And yet Jesus says, Let's do this thing anyways because it'll fulfill all righteousness. So what does it mean that Jesus was baptized this way in the Jordan River? First thing I want to do is talk a little bit about the Jordan River. The Jordan River is an important landmark in the land of Israel because it flows down on the western border, or the eastern border, sorry, of Israel. Pretty much its entire length of the river is the border of Israel with other countries. And it's been that way since very ancient times. And in fact, we see that when the Israelites cross into the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that it's when they cross what? The Jordan River, that they step foot into the promised land. And so this important boundary marker shows that this is the place God chose. And this is where God is choosing to start a renewal of the Jewish people in Jesus' day as as John is out there and baptizing people. It is not a big river. This is me and my friend Jordan remembering our baptisms in the river. This spot is a, is a well-known spot that's been being used by Christians for many years. It's just south of the Sea of Galilee because it's fully in the borders of Israel. It's been a safe spot for Christians to recognize their baptism for many, many years. Um, but it's not very wide, maybe 100 feet at most across in different places. Uh, we wouldn't call it much of a river at all around here, right? Uh, we might call it like a creek or something like that or a tributary to the Rouge River um, or something. It's not very big. In fact, uh, Jordan and I were the only ones who asked, can we swim across? So we did. We swam across, although we didn't really need to swim across. There was only maybe about a 10 or 12 feet section where I couldn't touch. The rest of the way I could touch and my, my head was well above water. And uh, I could breathe and walk across the entire river. So it's not very big of a river. And it's very dirty, as you can see. It's green there. Uh, actually, where Jesus was baptized was nowhere near this spot. It was about probably 60 miles south. Outside of Jericho is, is most likely the spot. 
Uh, it's a spot where there's early Byzantine churches where lots of people, early Christians, would go and migrate to to remember Jesus' baptism and also be baptized there in the river. And so very, very early on, it was recognized that it was down kind of more towards Jericho, which makes sense because Jericho is more of a straight-on shot across the mountains, across the wilderness from Jerusalem, and then the wilderness lays between Jericho and Jerusalem. So as Jesus left the Jordan to be tempted in the wilderness, he would have went up towards Jerusalem, and he would have went up into the mountains there. So the river's not very big, but what's this idea about baptism in and of itself? This is a picture of a city not far from Jericho called Qumran. Now, how many of you have ever heard of Qumran before? I've talked about it before, but this is uh, kind of almost like a monastery. It was like a Jewish monastery where a bunch of Jewish men uh, had forsaken the lifestyle of the people in Jerusalem. They believed that the temple structure was corrupt and they wanted to bring back a purity of devotion to the one true God, the living God, Yahweh. And so they gathered together in this place and they, they devoted themselves to extreme practices of devotion to uh, their God. In fact, they, they were so obsessed with ritual cleansing and things like that in order to be pure before God that they expanded all the different things that would make you unclean to the level that they were constantly washing themselves. So if you see in that picture that trough that is going alongside the walkway, that was an aqueduct that they had built from a spring nearby, and that spring would bring in water into the city here, and, or into the little monastery, and it would dump it into ritual baths. And you would see these ritual baths, or as they call them, mikvahs, all over the place, in throughout the entire settlement, and basically there's a stepway going down into the ritual bath, and then you would turn around after you had been completely immersed, and you would come up the other steps, and you see you would exit out a different set of steps, representing that you were devoting yourself, and you were going completely under the water, being washed clean, not physically, because this bath, as you see, would overflow, and then it would go down another trough to another bath, to another bath, to another bath. So I made a joke few weeks ago about the baths all in front of the temple mount, that if you were at the bath down below, how clean are you getting? Probably not very clean at all. And yet to them, it was more a symbolic spiritual cleansing that as they go and they're committing themselves to the Lord to do his work, they would walk into this bath. So this is often thought of as, as scholars have looked at the idea of baptism in the first century, because uh, what John was doing in the Jordan River was very different than Christian baptism. And so what was it that they were doing when they were out there being baptized by John in the Jordan? And this is probably the start of the practice of baptism. In the Old Testament, there's various laws about ritual cleansings and about being washed. But at, over the years, as the Israelites grew in their worship of Yahweh, they began to use baptism in all kinds of other ways. And so they began to actually use it as a way of consecrating proselytes, you know, people who were not Jewish, who were converting to follow after the Jewish God, they would use this as one of kind of the covenant signs, almost with circumcision, in order to cleanse the Gentile who was coming to now worship the Yahweh. So it was a way of kind of a representation of complete cleanliness, a complete transformation of their lives. But John seems to be doing it even, even a more unique way. When John is doing his baptisms, we are told that this is a baptism of what? Repentance. A baptism of repentance. 
Now, somebody threw out a definition of repentance. What does repentance mean? To turn around? Okay, good. What else? Anybody else have something different between turn around? You got to stop first. All right, that's a good thing. You, you can't turn around while you're still going. You got to stop, turn around. Okay, Gary? Huh? Yeah, knowledge. So there's, there's some kind of a recognition that you're going the wrong way in the first place. What else? The actual term that's used in the Greek is metanoia. And that the word actually means kind of a changing of one's mind or a transformation of one's being. And so in, as you are going into this baptism of repentance in John or to John out in the desert, what you're doing is you're saying that my heart has been transformed, that I have experienced a transformation of my heart and mind, and I recognize that I need to vastly change the way of my life if I'm going to follow after this God who I claim I believe in. And so this symbol of being washed there in the river was a symbol of being changed from the inside out, of your own decision to be transformed to follow after the one true God. And so how many of you think that describes something Jesus needed to do? No one raised their hand. Good. Because he didn't, right? What did Jesus have to repent of? From the earliest ages, we see that Jesus is perfectly following the one true God. And in fact, that was his destiny. That was what he was born for, that he was perfect in all ways. He never sinned, so he never turned away from God. He followed after God his whole life. So if Jesus didn't need to be baptized, have you ever thought about and asked the question, why did he go out and be baptized the baptism of repentance? Anybody have a guess? Up there, Bill. All right. What does that mean, though? Perfect. Perfect. I would even go a little bit step further than Bill. And I would say that Jesus was actively identifying himself with sinners. Now, we tend to think as Christians, especially as Protestants, we have this fixation on the cross as the moment of Jesus' repenting act or his act of salvation for all of humankind, right? This is the place where we are justified is at the cross. But it's really larger than that. And you can look back and you can see that even from the very moment of incarnation, God sets in motion a sacrifice of one man for all people. And it's in this moment in his baptism where he is identifying himself with us, with sinners, that I think we most clearly see Jesus' willingness to take on humanity's sin for himself. Because Jesus doesn't need to be identified with us, and yet when he comes down as a human being to live a perfect life as we have not lived, he has to identify with humanity in complete totality. He has to be human the way that all of us are human. And so he identifies with us. And so Christian baptism becomes something different because Christian baptism is not a mere repentance of our sins, but Christian baptism, we recognize, is us sinners recognizing God's identity with us and choosing to do what? Identify with God. Identify with Jesus. We get buried in his 
resur- or his crucifixion and raised in his resurrection in that act of being baptized. Uh, that's how the New Testament describes it. And so we get identified with the work and the person of Jesus, and that's how we began to follow after him. And so baptism has, becomes a very important part of Christian life, but it's a different kind of baptism after Jesus. When Jesus leaves his baptism, it says that the Spirit drives him or leads him out into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is an interesting place out there in that area. Uh, It's not like the wilderness you guys would think of. When you think of wilderness, you're thinking of what? Pine trees and deer and, you know, like no houses around and stuff like that. It's a very different kind of wilderness out there. But I want to stop and think a little bit about the fact that Jesus goes out into the wilderness after he publicly starts his ministry. Here he is. He's baptized. God opens up the heavens and speaks, and many around witness some kind of weird thing happening, right? And they hear this voice, and the Spirit alights on him. And so there's this public act, like starting, here's my Messiah. Here's the one who's going to save all people. And then he disappears for 40 days. I almost think to a certain degree that God needs a new PR firm. Because how many of you have ever seen a company announce like a launch for something and then just not talk about it or not show up or not do anything for like 40 days after that? That would be death, right? If you announce something big and you say something big is going to happen and then you don't act on it as a group or an organization, then people begin to forget about it, right? And they don't begin to, to recognize that this thing is really happening, they start to doubt it. And so, God, why did you plan it that in the moment that Jesus is revealed to be your Messiah and that his ministry is going to be significant for all of humanity, that you then take him to the wilderness for 40 days to disappear and never talk to humans? It's a strange thing, right? And yet there's real significance to him going out. Now, this is a picture I took in a stop that we made in Jericho. And that is a mountain they call the Mount of Temptation. Now, they don't know that that's the mountain that Jesus walked up to. There is a monastery up there, and they have a cave that they've built a little kind of chapel in that they, over time, kind of became the historical site. They believe Jesus sat and fasted and prayed for those 40 days, uh, but they don't know really where, but you could see the geography. All of that green that's down there, that's really modern-day green from irrigation techniques and things like that. It would all look like those mountains kind of in Jesus' day with just sporadic spots of green. So it was more like a desert. And Jesus went up into those rugged mountains, and he spends 40 days fasting. How many of you have ever fasted completely from food for 40 days? No one. No one has. Uh, many of us have fasted from one thing or another for 40 days, right? Right? And yet, we haven't really gone to the kind of dedication that Jesus did as he went out there. Now, notice this too. Jesus is tempted for 40 days as he fasts, right? We only tend to think of Jesus being tempted for like a few minutes because we see this scenario where the devil comes to him three times and he's tempted in these three very specific ways. But really, what the text says is that Jesus goes out in the desert to be tested, to be tempted for 40 days, So when Jesus later tells his disciples about his experiences there, he probably condensed them down to these three experiences. But Jesus was constantly tempted as he was out there and resisting the temptation as he fasted for the Lord. Now, as Becky talked about, those 40 days are significant in Scripture. 40 days, 40 years was kind of a sign of preparation in the Old Testament stories that God was preparing somebody or something for something big. And so here's Jesus going out into the desert. He's being prepared 
to be something significant for all of humanity and not just Israel. If Jesus was just there to be the Messiah of Israel alone, and he was going to lead a political revolution, then his moment was right after he was baptized and everybody was there and had seen and heard this crazy thing. He could have gathered tons of crowds, marched into Jerusalem, set apart a a huge revolution, and he could have done it right there, right? But no, God pulls him into isolation, and God allows him to be tempted so that he can even further identify not just with the Jewish people, but with every single human who has ever lived. All of us who have been tempted at some point or another have been tempted like Jesus was tempted in those 40 days, and yet each of us at some point or another gives into the temptation, right? Is there anybody here who has never given into the temptation? Good. Nobody's raising their hands on that one either. That's good. We've all given in at some point, and yet we're told that as Jesus has tempted this entire 40 days, he never gives in, that he stays completely obedient. And we see a little bit of his technique in these three stories that he tells his disciples that are then shared with us, that he uses what to resist the temptation? Yeah, his own words, Scripture. He uses Scripture to refute Satan's attempts to tempt him. But yet these three different stories that are told of devil coming to tempting him are tempting him into three ways that kind of in ancient times they saw were the major temptations. All right, And James even talks about them in his letter. But these are the three different ways that they think kind of encapsulate all types of temptations underneath these three different ways. So it shows the totality of Jesus' temptation, that he was tempted for all of us. And what this really shows is that Jesus truly was human. That as he suffered out there in the wilderness, as he prepared just like many other humans had for something big that God was calling him to, that he really was human. He was able to be tempted. It's only called temptation because it's tempting, right? And so it wasn't just easy for him to just reject these temptations. I think that it was real discipline and work for him to actually reject the temptations and stay in perfect obedience to the Father. And so we see Jesus' real humanity coming out in this spot. Now, why did God do it this way? C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia, talking about Aslan, which is kind of the Christ figure of the, of the land, the mythical land of Narnia, where the beasts talk. And Aslan is a lion. Uh, over and over again, you see this phrase in Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. He's wild, you know. He's not like a tame lion. Jesus tends to be, as Lewis is reflecting here in his fictional account, Jesus tends to be kind of wild. He does things that seem to have no rhyme or reason to us, right? And seem to be different. One time he heals a blind man just by saying, be healed. And another time he spits on some mud, makes mud and covers his eyes. Right? We don't know why he does these things. He does things his own way in his own time for his own reasons. He's wild. He's not tame. He's not our little genie we tell to do whatever we want. And so Israel had these expectations of Jesus, of the Messiah, that they thought was going to be how the Messiah would come and what the Messiah would do. And yet God chooses to do it his own way. And God makes it so that it's exactly how he wills for the Messiah to come and how he wills for the Messiah to save not just Israel, but all of humanity, not just from political oppressors, but from sin and death itself. God shows us his intense love and devotion for his creation in these acts at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. God shows us that he absolutely 
100% is in love with the human race. And that he wants all humans to come to know him and he's willing to go to great lengths to identify even with sinners so that he might save them and that they might eventually be able to identify with him for all eternity. So, these 40 days, these 40 days that we celebrate or that we practice in Lent are supposed to be a reflection of Jesus' 40 days in the desert. We give up something big in our lives or something small, but something that we'll notice and that will draw our attention daily to devotion back to the one who has showed such devotion to us. And that's why we celebrate these 40 days. Now, some of you will go and count on a calendar And from Ash Wednesday until Palm Sunday, you'll count how many days? 47. Not 40. 47. And the reason for that is that early Christians believed that you don't fast on Sundays. You don't fast on Sundays. Because those Sundays are little celebrations of Easter. And so you kind of get a little reprieve in the the week and you can celebrate uh, a the resurrection on Sunday mornings by not doing your fast. But this is an important time of us mirroring the work of Jesus, preparing ourselves to understand the work that he does for us in Easter and devoting ourselves to the one who has been so devoted to us so that we might follow him not just in Lent, but in Easter and in ordinary time and then back to Advent and on and on for all eternity. So as we embark on this journey together through the way, let us remember that God has devoted himself to us. Let us worship him. Let us praise him. And let us affirm our faith together in the Apostles' Creed.